watching TV these days, it's easy to feel like our democracy is pulling apart. But this week I see a very different sign of that, not on the channels, but in the lineup. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and the Nightlight is on. Tonight on the show, I'm thinking about our fragmented media landscape. Football season started this weekend, but a lot of folks cannot watch ESPN right now. ESPN's parent company lost access to one of the nation's biggest cable operators because of a contract dispute. Now, I've worried for a long time about whether our complex collection of streaming services can survive. But what does that have to do with the future of democracy? I'll share my thoughts next. Then. I'm not a prude, but there's a dirty word we need to stop saying. I wish people would think twice about saying it. I'll make my case for a new profanity, the A word. I love to hear from you. I'm on social media at Joshua Listening or email Joshua at nightlightshow.com. If you are new to this show, welcome. Glad to have you aboard. Here's what it's about. And if you followed my work over the last few years, you already kind of get that this is a theme of my work. But The Nightlight is a show about democracy, about the ways in which we live together and solve problems together and just kind of learn to deal with one another. It's something that's been a constant of my work for a good long while. And I don't mean politics, and I certainly don't mean democratic politics per se. I mean democracy, the system that allows us to hopefully live in freedom and not step on each other's toes and find ways to solve our problems together. That's what this show is about. This time around, I wanted to tell you about something that literally occurred to me the instant I woke up a few days ago. It had been kind of clicking around in my brain for weeks, and I woke up and rolled over and sat up in the bed, and boom, it just kind of came together. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot because I'm a media nerd. I work in the media. I think about these issues all the time. And I think there's something to be said related to who we are as a society regarding the moment we're in with the fragmentation of media. I don't know if you've been paying attention to this fight between the Walt Disney Company and Charter, which is a huge cable operator conglomerate. It gave me food for thought about the future of our democratic spaces. It might also be on my mind because football started up this weekend, both the NFL and college football. You've got millions of fans who are watching in a very different way or in patterns that they're not used to on services and apps and streaming services that they're not used to because of this big dispute. So here's what happened. Disney is asking Charter for more money in exchange for carrying ESPN. Disney owns ESPN. Now, channel prices usually go up on major channels every few years when the media conglomerates and the cable and satellite companies renegotiate their deals. These are called carriage deals. They're deals to carry the networks. By far, one of the biggest chunks of your monthly cable or satellite or YouTube TV or Hulu live bills one of the biggest chunks is always ESPN. There are a few other channels too, CNN, Nickelodeon, that MTV that command a whole lot of money. ESPN is way up there. According to Reuters, Charter pays more than $2.2 billion a year to distribute the various Disney networks. The bulk of that is probably ESPN, but that also includes the Disney Channel, Disney XD, FX, which Disney bought when it acquired it from 20th Century Fox, and a few others. 
Charter has made a proposal and it's pushing back on the deal this time around. Charter says Disney's fragmenting its content to pour more money into services like Disney Plus and Hulu, which Disney also owns a stake in. Charter doesn't see the point of having to pay more fees when cable TV overall is losing viewers to streaming services. So Charter said, how about you give us more flexibility in how we can bundle these channels together to subscribers? And how about you let us include these Disney-owned streaming services for our subscribers? So if you were a subscriber to a cable system that Charter owns, you would, for example, get Disney Plus for free. That was the proposal. Disney said no especially since it has talked openly about beefing up those streaming services even further. The CEO, Bob Iger, has made it really clear that like the TV business, she ain't what she used to be, and everything is on the table, including turning ESPN into a streaming service rather than just a cable channel, or maybe instead of being a cable channel. So whether this would mean taking ESPN off of cable systems, it's kind of hard to say. Now, stepping back. These negotiations are always tense. They often come down to some point of no return moment. There's a lot of brinksmanship. Sometimes channels do get taken off of cable and satellite systems. So if you've ever had that happen where you tune to a channel and there's this automated message that says, Comcast Television doesn't want you to be able to watch food TV because they think that you should have to pay too much and you should give them a call. That's what that's about. It's a contract dispute that you got caught up in. This time, though, there's a whole other factor, and that's the strike between the movie studios and two of Hollywood's big unions, SAG-AFTRA, which is the merged union of the Screen Actors Guild, movie performers, and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, broadcast performers. That union and the movie studios are going at it. Long-term strike is in effect. It's been going on for weeks and weeks. The Writers Guild of America, another union, is also on strike against these unions, and they're on strike over the overall contract that governs all of the work that unionized performers and writers do. There's one big blanket contract that covers every member of SAG-AFTRA and every member of the Writers Guild, and it's that big overarching Hollywood-wide contract that's behind this. So all of these moving parts are in play, and it's easy to see why every company is thinking about what's supposed to happen now because of the fragmentation of the media. The studios say that because of the change in the industry, they have to dramatically change their economic models. To an extent, I agree, the media need to evolve no matter what. I mean, you know, I used to work for NBC News Now, which is a streaming channel. Its existence is part and parcel of this change. NBC News Now is what MSNBC was at the beginning, 24-hour news. MSNBC has evolved into something else, much more progressive, much more opinionated, still a news channel, but definitely leaning left. And now streaming has allowed for a different option, and that's where I worked. Although I also worked on MSNBC before I got to news now. So some of these changes are inevitable. Some of them are just abominable. <laughs> and maybe you heard about one proposal that the studios put forth that got a lot of attention. It was this proposal to digitize artists and make AI versions of them that studios could basically just program to do whatever they wanted in productions. A company could wireframe you, digitize you once, and then use your name and voice and image and likeness over and over and over. And chances are they would only pay you once 
for when they make the wireframe, not for every other project that they make. At least that was the initial proposal. This is extremely unusual. In the media today, if I was acting in a movie, right? Say I starred in a Hollywood film and the movie ran in the theaters, but then it ran on, you know, streaming services and was released on DVD and then had a deal to run on cable and then another cable channel and then on broadcast. And then maybe it was syndicated to local stations. They could buy it as a package. I would get paid for every stage of that deal. Those are called residuals. And what the studios proposed with this AI option is eroding that system of residuals that many struggling actors rely on to survive. And the overwhelming majority of performers who are covered by SAG-AFTRA, they don't make that much money. I mean, to get SAG-AFTRA's health insurance plan, the current minimum is that you have to make $26,470 per year from union-covered work. So if I'm an actor and a waiter and I make money as a waiter, that's one thing. But to be covered by the union's health insurance, you have to make at least $26,470 a year on union-covered work, work that's covered by this contract that is the subject of the strike. What percentage of SAG-AFTRA performers earn that much? Take a guess. According to Rolling Stone, 14%, 1-4% of SAG-AFTRA members earn enough to qualify for health insurance through the union. It's very hard to make a living as an artist. And proposals like this are just going to make it harder. But it's not just hard on the artists. The companies are in pain right now, too. This system isn't working for anyone. Bloomberg just reported that Disney is trading on Wall Street at its lowest value in the last three years. It was trading kind of where it was, went up during the pandemic, has kind of leveled back off, and now is down. Warner Brothers Discovery's CEO, David Zaslov, announced this week that the strike has cut into the company's overall value by up to $500 million. I understand the fight that's going on, and I get that this is not really working. Like, they got to do something. But to an extent, I feel like these companies kind of brought it on themselves. I mean, no one told these companies and no one has ever argued that a movie is less valuable today, a television show is less valuable today to the people who consume it than it was 10 years ago. But Wall Street fell in love with Netflix, this model where they just throw an immense amount of spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. And Wall Street was like, Netflix got a profits. Do us a profits right now. And then all the studios just kind of pivoted in that direction. That is not strategy. It's barely even luck. You play every number on a roulette wheel and you win. It doesn't make you lucky. That's not skill. That's not strategy. But for some reason, these companies, some of whom have very skillful executives like Bob Iger at Disney, just went Netflix's way because Wall Street started screaming for that kind of profitability. No one on Wall Street understands what it takes to make a show make money, apparently, because the math does not work. And for some reason, these companies thought you could make more products with less revenue and continue to make more profits. That makes no mathematical sense. That idea of releasing a movie Stage by stage, what I just described, movie theaters, and then cable, and then broadcast, and DVDs, and on and on and on. That's called windowing. That system ensured 
a certain level of profitability for most movies. Replacing that system does not pay as much as the old system. The math doesn't work. It never worked. These companies knew that. Netflix knew that. But they created a model and they convinced Wall Street that it had to go along with it, that it had to be the wave of the future. And now we see how well it's working. Television is also struggling. And this is why Charter Cable is so mad about it. TV in particular, because of all of these industry changes, some of which predated streaming, TV's become almost entirely reliant on two forms of programming. Two forms that have always been a bedrock of television, but this is different. It's, it's in a very different way now than it has been in the past. One of these two forms is one that Disney absolutely dominates, and we'll get to that in a second. The first one is non-scripted television. Things like reality shows, home improvement shows, uh, cooking shows, things like that. That's where David Zaslav made his money, with Discovery. He made enough money that he could absorb Warner Brothers and hopefully will not destroy it in the process of making Warner Brothers Discovery. That's how this guy who created the network that gave you Dr. Pimple Popper now owns CNN. Life's funny, ain't it? But television now depends very much on non-scripted programming because it doesn't have to charge union rates. They don't have to pay for union writers. They don't have to pay for union talent. It can be made much more cheaply and it has proliferated on TV. That's why there are so many cooking shows and home improvement shows. Not because they're necessarily great shows, but because they're cheap, relatively speaking, and people will watch them for hours and hours. Sidebar, that's also why a lot of your local stations, local TV stations, do many more news programs now than they used to. Because creating another half hour or hour of local news is much less expensive than buying a syndicated show. It's one of the least expensive forms of television, and your local station keeps all the profits from that, or rather, the company that owns the local station, because they produce the show in-house. So it's not about quality. At the end of the day, that's about profits. So one form of television that is dominating for economic reasons is non-scripted television. The other one, the one that Disney dominates through ESPN, Sports. Sports programming is much more common, not because there are more sports, although it's kind of nice to see, you know, world's strongest man and, and cornhole tournaments and esports and all that kind of stuff. That's fun to watch, you know, dog agility contests. But it's because you can charge more for sports programming, pound for pound, minute for minute. Those other shows like World's Strongest Man and Dog Agility are just kind of placeholders to keep a network on the air in between the big ticket marquee programs. The leagues charge enormous amounts of money, billions of dollars to run, say, NFL games. And then the networks are able to pass that on to you by making you pay a larger chunk of your cable bill to watch sports as well. If you've ever heard people say, I wish I could just pay for the cable channels I want, you heard that complaint before? The reason that cable operators will never, ever allow you to do that is because there are certain channels they are counting on you paying for so that they can stay in business. Channels like ESPN and also CNN, Nickelodeon, and a few others. But it's changing everything. 
I mean, if you are a college football fan, you may know this already, but this weekend, USC, the University of Southern California, and Stanford played their very last football game as rivals in the Pac-12 conference. The reason is because USC is leaving the Pac-12. They're going to the Big Ten. Stanford is moving to the ACC. As a matter of fact, the Pac-12 has hollowed out so much in the last few years, it's not really even the Pac-12 anymore. It's about to be the Pac-2. All but two schools have left. Oregon State and Washington State are the only two left. Now, the Pac-12 is supposed to have a meeting this Wednesday. Those two holdout schools, Oregon State and Washington State, are asking for that meeting to be canceled so they can get clarity on what's next. For example, when the Pac-12 renegotiates its media rights deal, which is significant, do the schools that are leaving get to have a say in the deal? Do they get to vote? Do they even get to sit at the table? So these two schools that are left filed a legal complaint. They're looking for an emergency temporary restraining order. Media rights deals are a significant reason, not the only reason, but a major reason why the Pac-12 hollowed out in the first place. That's why your cable bill keeps going up. That's why Charter is so mad. It's the cost of sports, among the chief reasons. They said, hey, wait a minute, Disney, you're making all this money off ESPN, but you also have this side app, ESPN+, Plus, and you want us to pay more, even though you're saving some of your best programming for your app, this is Charter's accusation, even though you're saving some of your best programming for your app or for Disney Plus or for Hulu, what is the point of that? We don't want to play that game. And unless you give us more of your best stuff, like you always did, we might just have to drop you all together. And that's what happened. Those channels are off Charter's cable systems. In addition, in a few markets, Disney still owns local television stations. And those stations are off the cable systems in their local markets as well. What does all of this have to do with you? Well, first of all, I bring this up just as something that you need to be aware of. The ways in which we watch television have shaped America for generations. That is changing. And if you don't like the way things have gone as a result of, say, the proliferation of social media, those same cultural forces in terms of fragmentation and narrow casting and being very intrusive in terms of the data that these digital services can get on you, that is all spilling over into television and to an extent radio, but much, much, much more television. Podcasting too, but television's the key. So just keep this in mind in terms of the social and economic changes that are definitely affecting you and me. That's number one. These things used to be much more lucrative when we experienced them together. And here's the second part of it. Now it's so fragmented, and I think this is my larger concern, it's so fragmented now that it just isn't as sustainable, right? Now, for business, that means it's not as profitable. Movies were much more lucrative when we watched them in the theaters together. Television was much more lucrative when we watched it at the same time together. Now, that does not mean we should not have, say, on-demand film libraries. And it does not mean we should go back to the old days, right? It, there were far fewer women in positions of power, people of color depicted respectfully, LGBTQ people for sure depicted as human beings who were something other than a, a punchline or a threat. You know, you fewer immigrants, no Spanish language programming. So it, it's not necessarily that it was better then. It was just more sustainable. And I think the balance was different. 
And I worry now that the balance might be broken. And that's what's got me wondering if there is a connection, or at least a reflection, between our concerns over the future of society and democracy and the fragmentation of our media. We have made it much, much harder to find and support shared spaces. It's so much easier to stay in our little rabbit holes and to dig so deep into the things that we want that it doesn't really serve anybody. And it's forcing these media companies to cut to the bone. It's making it harder for the artists who make our favorite shows to survive. And on top of all that, and here's what we're not talking about yet, it's not connecting you and me to one another the way it used to. There is so much less of a common cultural conversation than we ever used to have. It does not have to be this way. I think we need to have some pushback to the ongoing fragmentation of everything around us. I think we need more people to say, no, this is something we ought to experience together. This is a story we ought to be told together. Very few places still insist on that. Broadway is one of the only ones. Concerts do it, but again, concerts are so much more important because the music is so much less lucrative. You used to be making a few dollars per track, and then thanks to Spotify and Apple Music and others, you're making a few pennies. So concerts are increasingly key, so artists can just feed themselves. I think that's the problem. We fragmented ourselves too much in our media and our culture without enough spaces for people to have connected, shared experiences. I don't know about you, but I want to share more experiences with other people. I don't want to be alone all the time. I don't just want to talk to you about something after I've seen it. I want to see it with you. I want us to do things together, not just as fans of a program, but also as citizens in a democracy. Maybe the crises that are happening now in media and news and sports and the arts and entertainment are a warning for the rest of us. I think they're a warning about the risks of over-fragmentation. Dissecting everything in our culture to the smallest, most individualized pieces is profitable for a very small handful of people. And it is amazingly destructive and unsustainable for so many more. I think we need to take the hint. I think we need to hear that warning. Maybe we can change course in our culture, before it's too late. That's what I think. What do you think? Does it make sense? Do you agree, disagree? Do you have questions, counter arguments, pushback? Was this a massive waste of time? <laughs> or do you think there's something to be discussed there? Either way, I'd love to know. Email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com, or you can comment online at nightlightshow.com. All right, coming up, I want to talk to you about designating a new profanity. Like I said, the A word. This is something that I've been the target of for years. You probably have too, or you said it to someone else in ways that I think you should rethink. I'll explain just ahead. Stay close.
The best part of the nightlight is you. Show your support for the show by becoming a paid subscriber. This can be more than just a podcast. It can be a community of people like you, people who want to be a part of building a better world for everyone, people who put connection above politics. Mainstream media is not doing it, and social media seems completely incapable, so we've got to build it ourselves. I have spent more than 20 years doing this work as an anchor and a newscaster and a national talk show host. Now I'm free to do it in new ways with no one to answer to but you. So come be my boss. The benefits for becoming a paid subscriber include access to all past posts on Substack, and you can leave comments there with priority over people who are not paid subscribers. You'll also get all podcasts and videos ad-free and early. To subscribe, you can go to nightlightshow.com, or if you want, just become a free subscriber on the site for limited access. Again, at nightlightshow.com. Thanks. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. You know, I created this show because I wanted a space to talk about things that matter to me, specifically democracy and culture and solutions to the problems we face. That's mostly what the show is about. But then what's the point of fighting for all these lofty values if you can't enjoy them in your everyday life? Like sometimes the small personal things, I think those are worth talking about too, and they're not small at all. So every now and then, I may drop in a brief personal thought about another topic that I think might interest you, not just how we live as a society, but how we live as individuals. This is not gospel. I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life. It's just something to get us thinking and talking. Feel free to agree or disagree or share your own story or ask questions or tear my points apart. Just let me hear from you. Email me, hit me up on social media. I would like to propose designating a new Profanity, a new dirty word, the A word. Now, I'm not saying that you should never, ever say this word again. I think there are some good reasons to say an array of dirty words. Sometimes it's downright mandatory. But I hear this one all the time, including in polite company, and most people seem to think nothing of it. And I have found this word to be more harmful than I think most people realize, especially to the people we say it to. Kids are growing up thinking this word is not only harmless, but helpful. And it's so insidious that the people who are harmed by it or, or even just bothered by it, I think many of them struggle to explain it themselves. Not that the folks who say it would even stop. They feel entitled to, they have forever. But I am asking you to rethink this word, to make it your new dirty word. The A word, advice. I, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I will bleep it next time, maybe. But this word has offended me for some time now. Every time I'm struggling, people give me advice, almost like a reflex. I have to actually ask them to stop, often repeatedly, and they look at me like I'm crazy. Why don't I want help? Do I like being mired in this problem? Don't I know they're doing it just because they love me and they care? Why won't I just try the advice? Give it a shot. See what happens. What's wrong with advice? Well, nothing inherently, but the way that it's given can do a lot more harm than good. It's taken me a really 
long time to articulate why this kind of help feels hurtful. And I have needed a lot of guidance over the last six or seven years of my life. But now I think I have the words to explain why. And maybe this will give you the words to say to the fixers and advisors in your life. Or maybe it'll make you think differently about solving other people's problems. Here's what I mean. When I am deep in struggle, the least helpful thing to me is unsolicited advice. What I actually need is solidarity and connection and care. There's another word for that. Empathy. Now, here's the key. All of those things I mentioned, connection, solidarity, care, empathy, those things are emotional. Advice is logical. It reduces a very heartfelt pain point down to these little bite-sized data points as if it were merely a math problem I couldn't solve. You know, it kind of minimizes how past experiences or trauma or rage or doubt may affect my resilience and my resourcefulness. I think that people who default to advice are trying to help. Let me be clear. But they think they're helping because their point of view is free from those emotions and therefore they believe they're thinking more clearly. Now, let's be real. They very well might be. But without the emotional piece of it, they're not just depersonalizing the problem. They're dehumanizing the problem. The emotions are part of the problem. Removing them as a factor in your solution means you're not addressing the problem at hand. You remove a variable, you change the equation. You're solving the problem you'd rather solve, not mine. And the subtext is, you wish I did not have the feelings I have, and wouldn't it be better if I could just view this like you do? Now, of course, no one says that out loud, but you don't have to. Your actions speak louder, especially if your actions include repeating the advice over and over and over. Now, like I said, most people who do this, I don't think you mean any harm, but this can also be used in really destructive ways. Abusers and narcissists will sometimes disguise their demands as advice. It gives them this morally superior perch to browbeat their partners into submission. I know what that's like firsthand. Maybe I'll tell you that story one day. So how can you offer advice in a constructive way? Well, to me, advice can only be helpful if it's wanted. Otherwise, empathy is more than enough. Empathy lets me know, it's almost like empathy lays the foundation for advice. Empathy lets me know that I'm not alone, that you don't judge me for not having solved this problem yet, and that your help will be there for me the moment I'm ready for it. But until I give you permission, emotionally, to help me, your advice just feels like control. It can make me feel stupid for not being able to do something that is presented as so simple and so effective. Brene Brown talks about this in her book, Atlas of the Heart. I did an interview with her when I was still working for NBC, and I'll post a link to that video at nightlightshow.com. Advice is one of the things that she refers to as near misses. Have you heard this term before? Super useful idea. Near misses are things that can seem like a particular emotion or form of engagement, but they're different enough that they don't get the job done. So some of the near misses for empathy, she lists eight of them. Among them are things like judgment, disappointment, blame, and my least favorite, sympathy. So for example, if I say, 
my boyfriend and I just had a great big fight. I think our relationship is over. And you come back at me with, that jerk, I can't believe that he would hurt your feelings. You're such a great person. I knew he wasn't any good. Don't you worry about him. He's going to get his. That might feel like you're taking my side, <laughs> but you're actually just making this all about him. I don't need help for him. I need help for me. Empathy might look like, oh God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I can imagine what that's like. I, 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 I bet I can imagine how you feel. What, what do you need? What would help look like? That's closer to empathy, is focusing on the person who has the need, not the person who caused the need. I'll put a link to that list of the near misses for empathy. That's also going to go online, nightlightshow.com. Anyway, back to advice. I can already hear some of your pushback. Thank you for listening to my little explication, but I can tell the wheels are spinning in the back of your head. I can hear the gears grinding and I can smell the smoke. I know what some of you are thinking, but Joshua, what if my advice is right? Fair question. Let's stipulate, just for the sake of conversation, that you are seeing the problem accurately. Let's further stipulate that you are offering a valid assessment of the situation and that your solution could work. Let's admit all of that could be true. Here's the problem. Who is it up to to solve the problem? It's still up to the other person. So what difference does your solution make if the other person cannot implement it yet? What good are you doing? To make matters worse, they may actually resent you for laying out the problem so neatly. How do you think it makes someone else feel to spend so much time and emotional energy mired in a situation and then you come along and unravel it like a magic trick? Well, then you've got another problem to solve. It's one they may never bring up, one that will just slowly erode their bond with you in subtle ways that won't show up until it's too late. How good is the advice really if it solves one problem and causes another? Now, if all this sounds like you, if you are the advisor in chief, please don't beat yourself up. Like I said, I think people do this with really good intentions. Seeing someone we care about in pain is really hard to bear. You want the pain to stop for their sake as fast as possible. That's humanity in a nutshell. We care about each other. And giving advice may be very well-intentioned, but actually it short circuits that care because as I said, it's logical, not emotional, and it disconnects your emotions from their struggles. You start reaching for the closure and the satisfaction of solving a big problem. And that means it's no longer about them. It's about you. I have seen this happen so many times in my work as an interviewer at various levels, I could tell, I could feel when I had disengaged from the person I was interviewing simply because my focus went to me rather than them. It is amazing. Once you're attuned to it, it's almost like you can't not hear it. You can't not feel it. There's a time and a place for advice. The trick is to time it correctly. Advice digests the feelings into thoughts and then that into logical ideas. And that can be useful if, and only if, the struggling person can do that dissection with you. So if I'm emotionally at a point where I'm able to view my problem logically, that means I've got some distance between myself and my feelings. I can hold those feelings kind of at arm's length enough to function despite them. Otherwise, 
I won't view what you're doing as trying to solve something separate from me. That doesn't feel like you're solving something. It feels like the solution is being done to me because the problem feels like it's still part of me. It's like you're dissecting me. And I can still hear the pushback. You're still pushing. But Joshua, what if I'm just asking questions so I understand the problem? Are you saying I shouldn't even talk to them about it at all? Just kind of listen passively? Do nothing? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying in the least. I'm fine with asking questions. I'm a journalist. I love questions. That's my stock in trade. But only if that's all you're really doing. If you're asking to understand. That's a great way to show the other person that you're present with them. You're not distracted by whatever solution you're concocting. But if you're doing it to formulate unsolicited suggestions, then we're right back where we started. Focusing on your advice is focusing on yourself. You're no longer on the same wavelength. They're feeling your thinking. You've chosen to stop feeling with them. And it will show. And before long... That prompts a new feeling, aggravation, irritation, and that makes everything worse. Also, sidebar, we need to clear up something about empathy. Because some people roll their eyes when empathy comes up. Maybe you've been rolling your eyes the whole time. If that's you, I hope you're driving safely. Keep your eyes on the road. But I get it. It seems touchy-feely. It seems wishful. Doesn't seem very powerful or impactful. Just feels kind of passive. The reality is... Empathy's not passive. It, that, that's why it's so hard. Empathy is so active, it can be exhausting. Empathy requires you to feel a piece of what the other person is feeling from your perspective. And usually that's some kind of pain, right? Empathy hurts. It's the difference between saying, oh yeah, poor thing, bless your heart, that must be hard. And saying, oh yeah, I know what that must be like. That is hard. You have to call that pain up in yourself, which I think is why a lot of people avoid empathy. But I'm telling you, whether it's as a journalist, as an interviewer, or just as a person, I have consistently found that the fastest way, fastest, to help someone through a crisis is empathy. That's because empathy expresses solidarity, and that's an amazing kind of pain relief. It, it focuses on the right thing at the right time. And that often is the problem. Just Focusing on the right thing. Not that you're going to do the wrong thing. You're just doing it in the wrong order. I mean, let me give you a scenario. Imagine you are an emergency room doctor, right? You work in an ER. And please, if you do work in an ER, please do not shred my analogy apart. I think this makes sense. But imagine you're working in an ER and all of a sudden the doors burst open and someone is brought in with a gunshot wound. You're on the ER team. What is your first move? Find the bullet, take it out. Wrong. Your first move is to assess the patient. Figure out what situation they are in. Can they walk? Can they breathe? How is their pulse if they have one? Are they responsive? And so on. You first seek to understand what's going on with them. Then you remove the bullet, right? No. Then you stabilize the patient so you can continue to figure out what to do. You stop the bleeding, try to ease the pain, look for the bullet, check for other damage, and if you can, you communicate with them. 
so that they can just tell you what happened. Diving in to solve a problem you have not explored in a patient you have not even tried to stabilize? I mean, I'm not a malpractice attorney, but I'd sue. Unless it's given at the right time, advice can drive disconnection, but it feels like you're being helpful, so it makes you feel better even as someone you love gets worse, or it makes you feel mad because they just won't do what you're trying to tell them to. That kind of advice just numbs your frustration at leaving the bullet there because it's unsafe to remove. It's the pain of feeling powerless. Let's be real. How often have you given unsolicited advice that the other person actually welcomed and followed and benefited from and thanked you for? How often has that whole chain of events unfolded? You gave advice, they welcomed it, followed it, benefited from it, and thanked you. How often? What results have you gotten? Your batting average might not be zero, but I'll bet it's lower than you might think. Well, if that's the case, why would we do it? I think on some level, we all know that unsolicited advice is just not a good idea. I mean, people who struggle with addiction don't just get sober, they seek sobriety. They choose a 12-step meeting or choose counseling or choose a residential facility. It's all by choice. If you impose advice, that robs me of my dignity to choose help as I see fit. And look, we've all got work to do in building those kinds of emotional boundaries and that kind of resilience to endure hardship with another person, but that's the beauty of building empathy. That's a chance to practice that famous line from the serenity prayer, remember? A chance to accept the things you cannot change, at least until the appropriate time to help change them. Giving someone the dignity of that choice takes emotional maturity too, but that's the power of empathy. It lets the other person know you're standing with them. Empathy is standing with, inside the struggle. Advice, that's standing by, waiting for the person to end their struggle. You don't have to advise, but you can acknowledge. And all you have to acknowledge, and I'm going back to Brene Brown here, all you got to acknowledge is the emotion they're dealing with, not the situation, the emotion underneath it. Even if they're struggling with something you cannot directly relate to, you can still connect with them by acknowledging the feelings that are wrapped around their struggle. It's almost like that logical part of your brain that wants to give advice. Just bring that focus to a slightly different place to understanding the emotion rather than doing the next step and finding a solution. That shows them you were listening, that you understood their story. And not only that you understood it, but that you believe it. See, it's the same impulse. It's just the end product that I think could change and be more useful. Unsolicited advice, especially when someone insists that you take it, can have this subtext of, I don't believe you're struggling with this when all you have to do is just, and perhaps that's what gets me the most when this happens to me. I mean, so many people in my life view me as this strong, smart, capable, worldly wise, articulate, creative person that when they see me in real pain, it's almost like it's offensive to them. They just flat out reject the notion that the me they've constructed in their mind could possibly be struggling like that. The Joshua Johnson they know would never get tripped up by this, especially since the solution is so obvious. Their Joshua Johnson would put on his cape and pick up his mighty hammer and rain down lightning on the monsters and save the day, just like always. 
nothing makes me feel so alone as knowing that in my hour of need, someone who knows me does not believe me, and therefore they cannot and will not help me. They're so convinced that I'm strong enough to help myself that the help I actually need never comes. And sometimes I'll even tell them precisely what I need. And often I say the exact same thing. I just need to know this is going to be okay. I just need to know I'm not alone. That's it. I need to know I'm not alone. I need to know this is going to be okay. I know I need it. And they know I know I need it. And when I tell them, I know that they know that I know I need it. But because I can articulate it, they presume that I am thinking about it logically rather than still mired in my emotions. And they think I should be able to do it. And the advice starts to flow. I'm alone in my problem and I'm alone in their solution. It is lonely as hell. That's how I know empathy works because it builds trust so fast and it is our most direct route out of trouble. The key is to do it without judgment and without the expectation of the other person asking for your advice at all. That ulterior motive is so easy to sniff out. So that's my request. New profanity, please don't use the A word unless the other person uses it first. Replace that A word with another one, acknowledgement. Or better yet, let's use more of that E word. You can throw that one around all the time. Empathy. Unless they say something like, I could really use some advice, then find something else to say. Please just keep it clean. Just watch your mouth. That is what I think. What do you think? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you sort of agree? Am I just rambling? Did none of this make any sense? Please, I hope I didn't waste your time. Or maybe you've got something to add to this. Maybe you found something that works or does not work in getting somebody through a tough time. Share what you know. Email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. I'm on social media at Joshua Listening, or you can share your thoughts online at nightlightshow.com. That's the show for this week. Please be sure to follow in your podcast app. Definitely, please, please, please leave a review. That'll help more people find the program. Also, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel if you prefer to listen to podcasts there. It is at The Nightlight Show. If you want to just log in directly, the web address is youtube.com slash at The Nightlight Show. Remember both symbols, slash at The Nightlight Show in the web address. Like this episode there. You can subscribe on YouTube and click the notification bell to get a heads up whenever there's a new episode. Again, I'd love to hear from you on anything you heard tonight or anything else that you want to say, share, or ask. Email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. This program comes to you from Sun Arts Media, dedicated to conversation, creation, and connection. If you want to see this kind of work impact America for the better, to make a country that is more connected, that is more empathetic, then consider supporting the show as a paid subscriber online at nightlightshow.com. 
All right, that'll do it. I'm Joshua Johnson. So until we meet again, thank you for making time for me. Good luck with your fantasy football brackets. And please keep on shining because someone, somewhere, needs your light right now.